pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast by those individuals who are interviewed for the Murder Chronicles are their own and do not necessarily represent those of Cavalry Audio. Please keep in mind that subjects described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 17, The Idaho Murders. I usually don't go to Reddit, but I went to Reddit because they had mentioned that Koberger had put like a prompt to get people to respond to some kind of criminal thing related to his, you know, to his PhD stuff, I think. And I saw a comment where somebody was saying that he had done some unspeakably horrible things to the victim, even more deep than what has been released. Do you know anything about that? Have you heard anything about that? I've heard rumors. I I don't know for a fact, but I would not be surprised that one of the victims was horribly, horribly attacked compared to the others. And that's the one he would have had his uh, fixated on. And so early on, I I, I said, and Dr. Dr. Liebert and I discussed back and forth, there's somebody was a target here and that person is going to be more more of a victim than the rest. I mean, they're all dead. It's terrible, but this person was mutilated more, and the others were just to get out of the way. And you know, but the thing is, it was chaos. He didn't know how to handle the chaos, and you know, the guy is not a duck. That's Cloyd Steiger. Cloyd and I were discussing the motive of the suspect in the horrendous murders of the four University of Idaho students. And when it comes to murder investigations, he's an expert. So, Cloyd, you have been a homicide detective for, like, what, how, how many years? Talk a little bit about your background so people know that you're, you have the goods. I was on the Seattle Police Department for 36 years. I was a detective for 26 years and a homicide detective for 22 years. After that, I went to work for the uh, state attorney general's office where I was a, the uh, chief criminal investigator for the homicide investigation tracking system. And uh, dur- during that time, I was uh, a board member on the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases, a national group that uh, looks at cold cases from around the country and tries to help agencies move them forward. In the aftermath of the quadruple homicides of four young college students, Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Kaylee Gonzalez. So the days following the murders, there was limited information being released about these brutal homicides. And what was felt contradictory. From the beginning, the police chief, James Fry, said it was an isolated crime. We believe this was an isolated, targeted attack on our victims. 
especially as the weeks wore on and still no answers, and a barrage of unfounded rumors and innuendo about possible motivations for the murders, there were some missteps within the Moscow Police Department. The community was stunned, and it was a lot for a city who between 2016 and 2021, there hadn't been any murders. Add to that a law enforcement agency who had only 36 employees and no full-time communications person. Now, saying it was an isolated crime somehow made it seem like the victims were targeted for a specific reason that didn't have anything related to the community. And so rumor mills went wild, which didn't sit right with the families. Here's Ethan Chapin's mom in a King 5 News interview. The reason we've agreed to do this is there's some misinformation out there, and that's been hard for us, and that's why we as a family talked about it and agreed to do this because the things that are being said are 100% not true. There's not drugs involved. There's not some weird love triangle. Ethan was just was stayed the night at his girlfriend's house, who was one of five girls who lived in the home. And it's just important that, that people let the criminal part of it try to work itself out and that that these kids, these, these all of the kids were just really good, great kids. As time wore on and no suspect was captured, it's understandable that people started to wonder if it wasn't a targeted crime and you have no suspect, how can anyone feel safe after a quadruple homicide of four young students for apparently no reason? The local mayor spoke to the New York Times, saying that the motivation of the killer was a crime of passion. Referring to it as a crime of passion inflamed the situation even more, and that comment was later walked back, saying that was just one possibility. I mean, it makes sense. This is an extraordinary situation. And it's believed that the mixed messaging was an attempt to calm the fears of locals, who by this time were extremely worried that the killer would attack again. And without transparency by local law enforcement investigating the case, these words were hollow. Many students felt so uneasy on campus, without a suspect in custody as the weeks wore on, that they refused to attend school and even left town. Police Chief James Fry came out again to try to reassure the public. We cannot say that there's no threat to the community. I probably should have been standing here a day or so ago, but I'm here now. Eventually, the Idaho State Police were brought in to help with messaging as police tried to do that dance of protecting the investigation while at the same time trying to calm the fears of a freaked out community. But Cloyd says the police department did something right. They asked for help. Well, you know, I know it has to be frustrating for them. They're, they were a small department. They were way over their head when this happened. But what they did is that they asked for help. And that's the most important thing. Realize, realize you're over your head. Ask for help and get other resources. And that worked out for them. And, you know, it had to be frustrating being the detectives here and all this chipping around. My early criticism of them was that they were giving up too much information. <laughs> Don't tell all this stuff, you know, because and tell, and they were telling the father and he would run out and talk to the news. Uh, apparently they kept enough stuff close to their vest that it worked out for them and they did a great job. And, you know, six weeks from the time this happened to make an arrest in this kind of case for an agency like this is a really, it's a win. So by now, you've probably heard about the tragic and horrific quadruple homicides of the four young college students whose bodies were found on November 13, 2022, and recently the arrest of a suspect 
Brian Koberger. Last night, in conjunction with the Pennsylvania State Police, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Koberger in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, on a warrant for murder of Ethan, Zena, Madison, and Kaylee. A 28-year-old man, Brian Koberger, was arrested on December 30th at his parents' home in Pennsylvania. He was a PhD student studying criminology at the nearby Washington State University, or Wazoo, that he lived just eight miles away from the murder scene. Koberger was extradited back to Idaho, and he appeared in court for the first time on January 4th, 2023, where he faced four counts of first-degree murder of the four University of Idaho students who were found stabbed to death on November 13th. You have the right to the presumption of innocence. That means the state bears the burden to prove that you are guilty of this offense beyond a reasonable doubt, death and or imprisonment for life. Do you understand? Yes. The public defender who's representing him, Jason Labar, says that Koberger was surprised by his arrest and, quote, looks forward to being exonerated, that he denies any involvement in the murders. However, the court unsealed an affidavit at the time of his arrest, which outlined how authorities tracked down Koberger and linked him to the murders. In this episode, from that affidavit, we're going to piece together law enforcement's timeline and the hours leading up to the quadruple homicide and the man they feel is the killer. But there are still so many unanswered questions, and for that, we'll go to Cloyd to help fill in the gaps of what we don't know. I have access to the case file. The only information I have access to is the same affidavits everybody else is reading. But based on my experience, I can interpret those affidavits, and, and this is my best guess. We'll be back after a quick break. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. November 12th was a Saturday. That night, the three-story home on Kings Road, where five University of Idaho college students lived together, was empty. The five young women, Madison, Kaylee, Zana, and two other girls, who were identified in the affidavit as BF and DM, all the roommates were out of the house having fun that night. Two of the roommates, Madison and Kaylee, they'd been best friends since sixth grade. They'd taken an Uber to the downtown Moscow bar called The Corner Club. Video footage from inside the bar that night captured Maddie and Kaylee having a blast from 10 p.m. to 1.30 that morning. After that, video of Kaylee and Maddie surfaced of the two girls ordering a late-night snack from the popular food vendor Grub Truck. Grub Truck live-streams their customers on a streaming platform, so this is the last video of the girls together alive. After that food truck order, according to the Moscow police affidavit, Maddie and Kaylee got a ride from a friend that they had run into at the food truck, who drove them back to their home on Kings Road. Meantime, that night, at around 9 p.m., Zana, remember she was also a roommate, 
and her boyfriend, Ethan, who was not a roommate at the Kings Road residence, were seen at a party at the Sigma Chi house. Ethan and Zana returned back to the Kings Road residence at about 1.45. Ethan was staying the night with Zana, and they both retreated to her room. The other two roommates, BF and DM, were out in the community that night, too. In fact, BF had seen Zana and Ethan at the Sigma Chi party. And according to DM and BF, all the roommates and Ethan Shapin, who was staying overnight as a guest of Zana, all were home by 2 a.m. and most were asleep by 4 a.m. The house was very still, except for when Zana received a DoorDash order at around 4 a.m. Logistically, BF's bedroom was located on the east side of the first floor of the Kings Road residence. DM's bedroom was located on the southeast side of the second floor, and she was asleep but then woke up at around 4 a.m. What the roommates didn't know was that as they were sleeping, footage of the Moscow neighborhood shows that a white Hyundai Elantra driving around their home three times, beginning just before 3.30 a.m. Now, you'll recall, at 4 a.m., Zana received a DoorDash delivery, and it's around the same time that DM says that she was awoken by what sounded like her roommate Kaylee playing with her dog upstairs on the third floor. Remember, she's on the second floor. Around 4.04 a.m., the white Elantra made its fourth round by their home. It wasn't long after DM was awoken by what she thought was Kaylee playing with her dog that she heard something else. It was Kaylee, and she said something like, There's someone here. DM, worried, got out of bed and opened her bedroom door. She didn't see anything or anyone outside. She stood there for a few seconds longer, and when she didn't hear anything else, she went back to bed. Phone records would show that Kaylee was on TikTok until 4.12 a.m. It was sometime after that when DM thought she heard crying. She got up again, opened her bedroom door for the second time, and she stood listening. Did she hear crying coming from Kaylee's room on the third floor? Then she thought she heard a man saying something like, it's okay, I'm going to help you. Later, investigators would obtain the neighbor's security camera audio, which was located less than 50 feet away from Kaylee's room. The security camera captured the sound of distorted voices, possibly a whimper, followed by a loud thud, a dog, Presumably Kaylee's could be heard barking again and again. It was 4.17 in the morning. And as DM stood in the bedroom door for the second time, she went to bed again, then jumped up when she heard crying. She got out of bed for the third time and opened her door. This time, standing there, she saw something terrifying. And it was coming towards her. A man, all dressed in black, wearing a mask that covered his mouth and nose. He walked down the hall towards her. He was 5'10 or taller, not very muscular, but athletically built, with bushy eyebrows. Miraculously, the man walked past her as she stood there in the doorway in what she would later describe as a frozen shock phase. The intruder seemed to be heading for the back sliding glass door, but DM didn't wait to confirm that and she went back into her room where she locked herself inside. She would later tell police that she had no idea who the man was, but police believe that he fled the residence from that sliding glass door because DM, though locked in her room, would say she never saw him again. 
Although the suspect fled the scene around 4.20 in the morning, first responders wouldn't be called to the Kings Road residence for more than seven hours. At 11.58, on the morning of November 13th, a 911 call was made from inside of the house from one of the surviving roommate's cell phones. She reported an unconscious person at the residence. When Moscow police arrived at the house, they were horrified by what they found. Two victims, Zana and Ethan, on the second floor, murdered. Two victims on the third floor, Maddie and Kaylee, murdered. Autopsies would reveal the cause and manner of death as homicide by stabbing. In the days and weeks after the murders, very little information about the details of the quadruple homicide were revealed. As I mentioned, the manner and death as homicide by stabbing was vague. But, according to the coroner, in an interview with the Today Show, the crime scene was gruesome. From house as horrifying. It was very, very traumatic. Have you seen anything like that before? No. The families and community grieved for what was lost. Four young lives. Who could do this? And why? And as the holiday season came and went, no arrest was made. The community fearful for more than a month and a half, where speculation and rumors ran rampant in the absence of information being released to the public, or even the grieving, and in some cases, angry family members who were publicly calling into question the investigation, an investigation where law enforcement didn't even appear to have a suspect. But that wasn't true. They'd just been holding their cards really close to their vest. And on December 30th, a bombshell was dropped. I want to express my appreciation to our local community, the people of Idaho and those throughout our nation who provided information to help us investigate these murders has been very impressive. We've received over 19,000 tips and we've conducted over 300 interviews. These murders have shaken our community and no arrest will ever bring back these young students. However, we do believe justice will be found through the criminal process. This was a very complex and extensive case. We developed a clear picture over time and we stand assured that the work is not done. This has just started. According to court records, a suspect had been in the frame pretty early on in the investigation. A full FBI forensic accounting of cell data from the roommate's phones led investigators to believe that the homicides occurred between 4 and 4.25 a.m. And so they went about canvassing the neighborhood for security video and what they would find in the early morning hours of November 13th in the area of the Kings Road residence and surrounding neighborhoods resulted in a suspect vehicle that they believed was a white sedan that belonged to the killer. This white sedan that was missing a front license plate was seen multiple times beginning at 3.28 a.m. in the Kings Road neighborhood until 4.20 a.m. The video footage shows the suspect vehicle making three passes by the college roommate's home. And this was suspicious because it was a residential neighborhood with not that many vehicles driving in the early morning hours on a Sunday. The suspect vehicle could be seen on the King's Road a fourth time at around 4.04 a.m., probably right after that DoorDash delivery that Xana had ordered. Video footage gleaned from the neighbor's video cameras shows the suspect trying to park in front of the residence at around 4.04 a.m. 
At approximately 4.20, the suspect vehicle is captured, tearing out of the neighborhood at a high rate of speed. A forensic examiner with the FBI reviews footage of the white vehicle and believes that it is a 2011 to 2016 Hyundai Elantra. They start looking through the registrations of vehicles in the area, and part of that investigation, which included combing through video surveillance from Washington State University, which is about 10 miles away from the Kings Road residence, which showed that at 2.44 a.m. on November 13th, a white Elantra, believed to be the suspect vehicle, was observed traveling from Wazoo towards Moscow, Idaho. At around 5.25 a.m., the suspect vehicle, believed to be the suspect's, was seen on five cameras at Washington State University. Which is why on November 25th, the Moscow police asked local law enforcement agencies to be on the lookout for the suspect vehicle. And four days later, a Wazoo patrol officer saw a white Elantra with the license plate LFZ-8649. And it was registered to Brian Koberger. Koberger lived in an apartment in Pullman, really close to Wazoo, and when they pulled his driver's license, it showed that he was a white male, a height of six feet, he weighed 185 pounds, and he had bushy eyebrows. This description matched DM's statements to the police. More Murder Chronicles after the break. A larger picture of Koberger began to emerge. He was a PhD student in criminology at, at Washington State University. He had undergraduate degrees in psychology and cloud-based forensics, and that he wrote an essay when he applied for an internship with the Pullman Police Department in the fall of 2022. This essay detailed his interest in assisting rural law enforcement agencies with how to better collect and analyze technological data in public safety operations. They also found that Koberger had posted a Reddit survey asking participants to provide information to, quote, understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime. Investigators were able to glean even more information on Koberger because he'd been pulled over multiple times in traffic stops. On August 21, 2022, he'd been pulled over by a Moscow, Idaho police officer who noted that he had Pennsylvania plates, or rather, plate. In Pennsylvania, you only have to have the back plate. The front plate isn't required. But in Washington and Idaho, they are. Remember that white Elantra that they believed was the suspect's vehicle that they'd captured on video surveillance footage? It didn't have a front plate. During this traffic stop in August, Koberger provided his cell phone number. So investigators were able to use the cell phone number after the murders to commence a thorough forensic dive into his phone records. According to Koberger's cell phone data, his phone wasn't in range of the Kings Road residence between 3 and 5 a.m. But based on that video footage, the suspect vehicle, which was believed to be that white Elantra, was in the neighborhood. And they believe that car belonged to Koberger. This was further backed up with some phone records that showed at approximately 2.47 a.m., Koberger's phone left his residence in Pullman. A short time after, police believe he's traveling south through Pullman and the phone stops reporting to the cell network. This is where police believe he turned off his phone. The phone is back on at 4.48 a.m. in Idaho, and at about 5.39, the phone pings traveling back to Koberger's residence. Then again at 9 a.m. that morning, cell phone data shows Koberger's phone near the Kings Road residence between 9.12 and 9.21 a.m. Then he drives back home. 
getting there at about 9.32 a.m. The language of the affidavit explains, they're thinking this way. Investigators believe that Koberger, the user of the cell phone with the last four digits of 8458, was likely the driver of the white Elantra that is observed departing Pullman, Washington, and that this vehicle is likely the suspect vehicle. Additionally, during the early morning hours of November 13th, Koberger's cell phone, reporting to AT&T between 2.47 and 4.48 a.m., is consistent with Koberger attempting to conceal his location during the quadruple homicide that occurred at the Kings Road residence. Koberger's cell phone data puts him allegedly stalking his victims in the months prior to the murders. Beginning in June of 2022, there were 12 occasions prior to November 13th when Koberger's cell phone was in the area of the Kings Road residence. All of these occasions, except for one, were in the late evening and early morning hours. In mid-December, after the semester at Wazoo was over and the school was on winter break, Koberger drove the Elantra back to his family's home in Pennsylvania, along with his father, who had traveled to Washington so the two of them could make that long drive together. During this road trip back to Pennsylvania, Koberger was stopped twice by police for traffic violations. On December 27th, agents recovered trash from Koberger's parents' home in Pennsylvania. This evidence was sent to the Idaho State Crime Lab for testing, and on December 28th, the crime lab reported that a DNA profile that they got from the trash and the DNA profile obtained from the knife sheath that was left behind in Maddie's room was identified as male and not being excluded as the biological father of the suspect profile. According to the affidavit, at least 99.9998% of the male population would be expected to be excluded from the possibility of being the suspect's biological father. And here, Cloyd helps explain that DNA. Obviously, it wasn't in CODIS, which is the uh, local and national DNA data bank. So once they identified him as a potential suspect, what they did was they went to watch his father's place in Pennsylvania and did a raid on his garbage, basically. And when they when they did that, they found the DNA of the father. And basically what they're doing is a reverse paternity test in that case. And so they were able to show that the father was a biological uh, father of the person that left the DNA on the knife sheath in this murder in Idaho. And so then you go, well, how many, it has to be a male because it's, they look at the Y chromosome. How many males does he have? I don't know if this guy's had brothers or not, but it, are any of them in the Moscow, Idaho area? Probably not. So that narrowed it down to this guy. And that was a probable cause to pick him up. Nearly two months after the killings, a number of questions remain. The motive for the crime remains a mystery. Also, where is the murder weapon? How did the killer get into the home? And why did the masked man who walked past DM in her doorway let her live? The affidavit also doesn't shed any light as to whether Koberger had any other reason to be in the area at the time of the killings or if he knew any of the victims. But Cloyd believes that the killer had stalked his victims and whatever he intended to do when he made entry into King's Road residence went off the rails. Oh my gosh, this Koberger. What the heck? Let's start there. Now that we have all that information on him, what do you what are your assessments? What do you think? Well, you know, he's an odd duck. And this is something that he's been stalking these girls at least for months or at least one of the girls. Uh, and they can tell that from 
his cell phone activity and where his car went during certain times that he went by that house, even though he was in Pullman, he went by this house in Moscow a few times. Um, you know, I, I don't have enough information about him to say, is he a psychopath or anything like that? But, you know, it, he's just not right. But he's got issues, and for whatever reason, he had issues with at least one of the girls there. And went to the house. Did he go there to kill them? I, he must have. He went there armed with a big knife. Um, maybe she'd rejected him in the past, or he perceived she'd rejected him. I don't know. But then he, he got involved in this heinous thing where he just slaughtered these four people. And he, like, he may have had a lot of plans how it was going to go before he did this. But once just like battle plans. Once you get into the battle, they all go out the window, and it's chaos. Cloyd also accounts for why he believes the killer left that knife sheath behind at the scene. He made stupid mistakes. He left his knife sheath there. They got the DNA off the, off the snap on that. And I'm sure they have other DNA. They didn't list everything in that affidavit because they only have to list enough to get probable cause to, to charge him. But I'm sure there's other stuff. I would imagine there's uh, fingernail scrapings from some of the victims that might have his DNA on him. As Cloyd mentioned, it sounds like the DNA they found on the sheath that investigators believe belongs to the killer wasn't in CODIS, hence the need to collect a surreptitious sample from Koberger's parents' home in Pennsylvania. Cloyd feels that potential sample collection from Koberger's father is physical evidence that was critical to the arrest warrant. Now they're doing, you know, the work just begins in this case with the arrest. Now they're doing all this other stuff. They're going to do, you know, they'll, 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 I'm sure they probably have already swabbed his cheek and do a one-on-one DNA comparison with the suspected DNA left at the scene, which will give them the numbers that, you know, we all know exist, which is in the, you know, at least the quintillions and maybe into the 50th power of something. And, and that will really nail it down. And so this guy's only only defense at this point is a mental defense, although I understand they don't have a not guilty by reason of insanity in Idaho. So I'm not sure what he's going to do because it's going to be, he's pretty wrapped up in this right now. From what I've seen, you know, it's a pretty solid case. If the DNA from the knife sheath comes back as belonging to Koberger, Cloyd believes that it'll be tough to explain that away, especially when you consider the circumstantial evidence. Circumstantially, you know, he turned off his cell phone when he went over the murder room, but he was stupid enough. He left it on when he was just stalking them. And you just go back and see, well, this car was by there several times. And then the neighbor's video shows that white Elantra. Then the, you know, the campus police at WSU did a good job in finding a white Elantra and said, this guy owns one. And I'm sure that's what put him onto this guy because WSU is very close to University of Idaho. And and that's where we are today. This will be years before this goes to trial. But uh, I don't like this guy's chances. Another oddity to me about the case was knowing that Koberger was a PhD student with an interest in criminology. What was the deal with him getting pulled over in the months leading up to the murder so many times for traffic violations? All of his, the times that he was pulled over, it feels like this guy has been pulled over more than six months than I have in my entire life. Like what, why? 
you know, just like twice on his way to this on this road trip to Pennsylvania. And then like, you know, where they were able to like he didn't, you know, make sense of why he didn't have a front plate. And, you know, apparently in Pennsylvania, you know, as they've been putting this together. Well, you know, some of those, I mean, they're just, you know, he's just sloppy. One of them I saw, he wasn't wearing his seatbelt. Well, why wasn't he wearing his seatbelt when he went by, you know, when they stopped him for that and gave him a ticket? The ones on the way back to Pennsylvania, I think those were orchestrated, intentional, trying to get video of him, uh, you know, to pull this car over. And so I don't think it was, I mean, I'm sure there were really traffic violations, relatively minor, they wouldn't have bothered with, but they did because they requested to stop this car. But uh, the other ones, you know, that's just, it's just, you know, you just don't think these things through. People think they can commit the perfect crime, and they can't. And this guy certainly is narcissistic and thinks he's smarter than everybody. Uh, he's a Ph.D. candidate in criminology. He knows what he's doing, but he really doesn't. Cloyd isn't shocked by Koberger's desire to be in law enforcement. What did you make of that when you found out that he wanted to be, like, you know, applied as an intern at the Pullman Police Department. Well, you know, that's not really that uncommon. A lot of these guys that way, uh, like, uh, oh, what's his name? My guy, my guy just blanked. He was the hillside strangler. Yeah, yeah. Bian- was it he Bianchi? Or Bianchi or yeah, Bianchi. He was a reserve with the Whatcom County Sheriff's. So it's really not that unusual. It kind of fits the profile a little bit of what these guys do. And then, uh, oh, the big guy, I can't think of his name either, Gr- six foot nine guy oh the uh, gosh i know what you're talking about he killed his I, mom uh, yeah he killed his mom and had her head ed, ed. bag yeah ed kemper he would hang it out with the cops you know and meet him for coffee and things like that it's just it's just it's not unusual it's kind of way it goes floyd gives his take on the roommate who was in the doorway of her bedroom when the killer dressed all in black with a face covering walked right by her after murdering four people in the house that night well, you know, he was in this state. He might not even notice that person. He was in a, in a absolutely weird, out of control, amok. And for, and it's a lot of work to kill these people. He might have been physically exhausted, but he may not have even noticed that person. The person saw him, but he may not have known they saw him. Uh, but you know, I don't know. You know, it's just that's an interesting question, but it's hard enough to kill four people, much less six or five. So I, my, my guess is he was physically exhausted. It was an overwhelming thing for him. And he was in this state of tunnel vision that he made a walk right past that person, not even seeing them. The way that you're describing this, it kind of reminds me of the Ted Bundy Chi Omega, where it was just like one after the other. You know, do you think that, you know, this guy could have more victims out there? Or do you think this was like the first based on the limited information that you have? Right. Well, based, I, I don't believe he's done anything before. I mean, would he have done things after this? Maybe. I don't buy him in as a serial killer. He's not a lust murderer like Bundy was. And Bundy, you know, was very controlled and got better as he went. And he was out of control by the time he came to Kyle Omega. And that's what got him killed, uh, got him arrested. And that Kimberly Leach, the little 12-year-old he killed, he was just out of control and run him up. This guy was just run him up from the beginning. He's a, a nutcase, not meaning he's psychotic, but he has issues uh, and fixated on one of the victims. And for whatever reason, that's why he kept going back and stalking that apartment or the house over and over because he had fixation on this victim. That's who he was looking at. And, and but, you haven't uh, heard of which one it is? Well, I've heard rumors that it was Kaylee, but I don't know that for a fact. The next preliminary hearing in the case is scheduled for June 26th. 
This is when prosecutors will outline evidence in an attempt to prove they have probable cause to try him on those murder charges. I wanted to end the episode today with thoughts of the family of Kaylee, Maddie, Ethan, and Zanna. The loss of these kids is unimaginable, and the pain and sorrow that that these families are grappling with is important to hear. It's not something you ever expect to hear, ever. Like the call we took from our kids um, who were there, and you just expect to outlive your kids, honestly, I don't know. We're just trying to process it. It's not a call that you think that you're gonna have to speak with the funeral home directors and the FBI and have it hit national news. I mean, I don't, we're more concerned, you know, Ethan was a triplet and that's a big thing. There's a couple of things. Ethan was a triplet and that's the most important thing for us because we have these other two kids that are very impacted by this um, and they need to be lifted up and cared for. It's a huge loss. We, we, we were at Parents Weekend last weekend with them, and Jim and I left that weekend. And as we pulled out of Moscow, we literally were like, we've done it. We, we've literally done it as parents. We've created three incredible humans that will go on. We always uh, work hard and, uh, and make our own money and, and buy our own cars and pay for our own gas. and. Uh, yeah, uh, and I just, I wanted to, when I was up here, I wanted to make sure to mention Jake. She got to have this, it was really her, her main, her only real big relationship she had in her life was uh, with Jake, who is such a great guy, and I'm so glad that she got to just have at least a little taste of, of what it's like to be in love with someone, and uh, he's just a really great guy. They treated each other the way you're supposed to. And, uh, yeah, I was really proud to, to just call him my, my daughter's boyfriend. And maybe someday, uh, maybe they would have uh, gotten married, you know. It seemed like it at least. But, uh, yeah, um, I just want to thank, uh, like like they said, thank all the people working on trying to figure this out. And uh, it really means a lot. All the love and support that everyone out there has shown through this has just been amazing. I, I've heard from people I haven't thought about or heard from in 30 years. And, and uh, yeah, just to see how good people can be when something terrible happens. Uh, they, uh, they make you feel loved and supported when, when it's important. But. Uh, yeah, anyway, um, thanks for being here. And, uh... <sighs> Maddie has truly been a blessing in our lives. Watching her grow and mature into the amazing woman she become is truly priceless in our hearts. She was the world to us. Maddie was such an easygoing, loving child growing up. She was patient and relaxed, a patient and relaxed toddler most of the time. And as a teenager, she didn't really give us many worries or, or trouble. Anyone who knows our family knows that we're Steelers fans. 
Uh, favorite time for favorite memory for me was watching the game with her, and every time the Steelers scored, I'd pick her up and I'd hold her high in the air, and we celebrate together. And she'd always just laugh so hard at that. She'd, we'd just crack up and have a great time. My wife will read a poem that she had on her page, Kaylee. And uh, here you go. I came across this. <laughs> Going through Kaylee's stuff. It's called Milk and Honey. Most, most important is love. Like it's the only thing you know how. At the end of the day, all of this means nothing. This page, where we're sitting, your degree, your job, the money, nothing even matters except love and human connection. You who you love and how deeply you love them, how you touch the people around you and how much you give them. Kaylee was our middle child out of five. She was always competitive. She was smack dab middle, so Steven and Olivia were a little bit older. Audrey and Aubrey were a little bit younger, so she kind of had to figure out where to fit in, and she definitely did. Um, if anybody knows, and I know a lot of you people, the ones that know her, are going to be right there with us. It's going to be a tough road. This kid is just, she, she shone, shone light to the day when you see her, and she taught me a lot of stuff. She taught me how to be a dad, and I didn't know that. <laughs> Until she was gone, you know. It's like Santa, you taught me, you taught me something. I didn't know that. <laughs> She's like, she really became the woman that she was going to become. You know, the last weekend I saw her, which was a week before that, she was taking care of the house. She was taking care of things. She took my keys from me and said, "You had too much to drive, drink, Dad." You can't, you can't drive with you ride your hotel. She was being the mom to all the kids and the girls. And I was really happy to see her there, happy. That's what I remember that weekend is her being happy with the other girls, taking care of stuff. The house was beautiful, taking care of everybody. Everything was just about as good as it ever could have been in my picture as a parent. Um, what it was going on in U of I, good grades. So I can remember that. Doesn't make it better, but it makes it a little bit easier. I wanted to thank you for listening. And before I let you go, make sure to check out the bonus episode, which appears after every show. There, my producer Brandon Morgan and I discuss the week's case in more depth. And if you want to enjoy the Murder Chronicles ad-free, check out Cavalry Plus on Apple Podcasts. And as always, thank you so much for listening.
The Murder Chronicles is a cavalry audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.